0: Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the, uh, why does it say the 16th on the sheet? It is definitely not the 16th. It is the 19th of October and we are, uh, it's Monday. We should have this out by tomorrow. We want to do something a little bit different today and we have a guest on with us from the beginning of the show. So it's not like our usual thing where we save the guest for last. We wanted this person to talk with us the entire time and to share her unique perspective. It is uh, Jenny wong Medina, who is the assist, who is an Assistant Professor of Korean Literature and Culture at Emory University. But um, she's not really going to talk about that so much, but she has a very special perspective and has done a lot of thinking, I think, and a lot of research into what we're going to talk about today, which is, uh, I'm going to dispense with the usual introduction of the show, but Tammy and Andy are here along with Jenny. How are you guys doing?
1: Good. We're okay. What up, guys?
0: <laughs> um. So, we wanted to talk about something, and you know we've been this has been something that we've wanted to talk about for a bit, and we've touched on it in the past, but there was an article in the New York Times this week um about a beauty store in um Milwaukee Chicago, South, South Chicago. Or, no, in Chicago wow well, yes <laughs> I, I would rerecord at this point, but it's too late whatever I did read the article, but you know um it has been a little bit, but it's a it was sort of a piece about how a korean run beauty supply store and a black employee and what happened when, uh, you know, protesters came to that store and it sort of tells a type of story I think that gets told a lot but maybe not in big circles but I think in specific academic circles or maybe even um, progressive circles it gets told which is this tension between you know, uh, Korean owned businesses in black neighborhoods the history of that and you try I think if you are the type of, you know, person who wants to see a redemption story and wants to sort of, quote unquote, explore the nuances of the story, sort of tells a typical story in that sort of way. So like, uh, I don't know, Tammy, like what, what what, was in this story? Why don't you tell us?
1: Sure. So it tells a story about how after the George Floyd killing, um, there were obviously a lot of riots that broke out around the country and one of ones in Chicago um, ended up in the destruction of one of two of the stores owned by this com- this family, the Na family. And it's a story about how Koreans have basically taken control of a lot of beauty supply stores over the past few decades and are kind of both in charge of, at the point of retail and wholesale, um, Black hair businesses and you know the kinds of resentment that that builds in Black communities and the very difficult relations between Korean shop owners, Black employees, and Black neighborhoods. Um, you know, we can imagine all of the sort of capitalist conflicts that arise there. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, I think if you're from the West Coast or, like, the New York area or Chicago, like, this is a story that is somewhat familiar to us or kind of archetypal, right, in some way, because it connects to, like, the L.A. riots. It connects to, like... The Crown Heights conflicts it's just like a very kind of built-in motif, I think, of Korean-Black relations. But I found this story pretty well told, and I think it got around a lot for that reason, because it tried to be quite sympathetic, I think, to all the parties involved.
0: Yeah, it was definitely balanced in a way that is somewhat rare. Like, you either get the, uh, these days, you either get sort of the libertarian type of slant on it, which is like, this person worked very hard, and these writers came and (laughs) burned down their store, and then you get some like kind of like obviously canned quote from the guy about like i came to america to work hard and achieve the american dream and look what they did you know and then some quote about you know how he has black friends or something like that (laughs) but then you get the other you get the other side of it which in some ways is just as yeah i think that in some ways it's you know maybe more accurate and certainly more sympathetic to a certain type of of uh of reader, but it's a type where it's just like, Oh, this person is like a pest, you know, like this person is a leech on the community yeah. and they got what they deserved, And that's, you know, those are the two modes and, you know, trying to, it's not this part this piece, I think in some ways trying to consciously split between those two poles. I think it was, it was at least aware that those two poles existed and whether or not it was successful in that, I think is up to you. But, um, I actually found it to be more true than, you know, either the, poles and so i don't know it's not always bad to sort of split the middle it usually is bad to split the middle but at this point you know (laughs) just conveniently the middle seems to be quite where the truth is so um jenny what can you what is your relationship to these uh to these korean beauty stores or these beauty stores and and like they have like a resonance in your childhood do you want to just tell us about it
2: yeah sure um so i grew up in one of these stores um my parents um came when they came to this country they um had a connection to a wholesaler which was my uncle and so they came to the us in the early 70s with a kind of platform to start doing business immediately um and um they went from owning like a small wig stand in like um a flea market to Mm -hmm. having a wig boutique to then branching out into wigs and beauty supplies um, and now my brother has taken over the business. They have four stores in Sacramento, California. Oh, wow. um, so, shout out to King's Wigs and Beauty. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that where they
0: started out in Sacramento?
2: Yeah, in Sacramento. Um,
0: um, and they started in the early '70s. Is that right? Yeah. And your uncle had come over to the United States already, or was he? Was the connection through him through? through you know, like through was it international?
2: Um Well, the wigs come from Korea, or in the early 70s, the wigs came from Korea because this is when South Korea had a textile industry, right? Um, and really good hair. So also <laughs> they also had an impoverished populace shortly after the war. So um, selling hair was a good way to go for uh, for some people. Um, and making them into wigs that meant that's why the Koreans were doing the wholesaling.
0: Um, Yeah. And uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of that history on the show. And, you know, I apologize if you're like the type of person who just wants me and Tammy and Andy to just give takes like, you know, we can do a lot of that afterwards. (laughs) But we want to lay down sort of a baseline of information (laughs) here because uh, I think this is actually quite interesting, which is that, you know, the, the wig industry in Korea really started in the 60s and 70s. So sort of wigs were not really a thing until the 40s. And in Europe, they became a big thing because like some fashion runway, early fashion people, I guess, in the 40s started it in Europe. And the wig industry was really just sort of a high end thing that was done for, you know, I don't know, like hoax toward type of things. And then it spread out. And, you know, as it spread out, there was a higher demand. And, you know, that demand led to a need for cheaper production and different types of hair. And that is when the wig business went to Asia. And it primarily, I think, started out in Hong Kong, parts of China. And then because of international things that I think Andy can tell, you know, Andy knows this stuff better than I do. I just read an article about it, two <laughs> articles about it, that the, uh, <laughs> the wig industry ends up going to South Korea in the early 60s. And there's sort of this very short-lived boom of, of the wig industry in Korea, where it becomes the, one of the top exports out of Korea it also becomes sort of this cultural thing where young girls are cutting their hair. I actually, you know, do Tammy, do you have, or like, you know, I didn't actually realize this until I wrote this article, but like there was this big stigma that my mom has about like, uh, you know, how, you know, she's like the, one of her sisters had short hair or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think it must've been related to this period of time because it was the exact same period of time where they're like, Oh, well, you know, having short hair back then was meant something and I'd never listened but it, wait, I mean, you I mean, imagine that this is what she's talking yeah. about? Do you mean you know, that's, that's potentially lost
3: in income for the for the girls? Like they have to grow their hair out to constantly sell it? Or it's an No,
2: I think that, 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 that if poor.
0: you have all your hair chopped off, it means right. you're so poor. Your uh, you to yeah. Uh,
1: I, don't oh. know. Your I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm
3: like opportunity costs, What's going on? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. So, um, Korea has this boom that coincides with 1965 Immigration Act, right? Which leads to a uh, boom and uh, this sort of like cross-cultural export type of minded thing. And what happens is that um, in America, the majority of the customers are are black customers in the late 60s and early 70s. And that some of the understanding that Korean people have who are immigrating to the United States of, of like what black people want or what black culture is or he, how to even like sort of go into black neighborhoods is because of American GI culture, right? which is that they grew up in korea and they had a they actually had some interaction with black gis who were in korea now um i don't the you know this is all based on a couple articles i have no idea how much that that part seemed a little overdetermined to me right like the idea that like oh well because you like go and you see a couple of gis and because you know a couple of kids who are half black korean that you suddenly go in and you're like all right like you know i understand (laughs) all of american black i don't think that's particularly true but i do think that sort of the you know that maybe some of the barriers of, of going into those neighborhoods and feeling so foreign, maybe that, that went down. So that, that's sort of a brief history of it. Am I missing anything here, Andy? No, other than,
3: you know, a lot of that comes from Jenny and my, our mutual friend, Jason Petrulis, who's working on this history. And he actually got, uh, you know, so shout out to Jason. And he he got this, uh, part of his idea was talking to Jenny about her childhood. And Jenny's told me about you know her childhood as well. So and I've also thought uh, this as you said it intersects with like China and Hong Kong and it's not just a Korean story, it's like a trans Asian mm-hmm. story. And it obviously is also like United States and Trans Asia as well. Right. India and uh yeah, Indonesia. It,
1: Indonesia,
3: yeah. Yeah, like where do where does the hair come from today if it's not Korea and China? If it's is it Southeast Asia? Asia India. Yeah. Southeast Asia yeah, and Indiana. India. Yeah. 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 So
2: um, I will say, though, that um, it didn't really move into only being black hair until the 80s. In the 60s and 70s, there was still kind of a market in, for boutique wigs. Um, think like Dolly Parton, Eva Gabor, <laughs> the true. Gabor Sisters, yeah. right? Like, yeah. that hair is not naturally done, or you didn't do it every day. <laughs> so um, it doesn't repair a little too hard.
3: So it doesn't matter what color the hair is. the qual- the, the point is like it's curing hair is good quality hair. It's like stiff mm-hmm. and can be dyed and bleached and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It's very. Strong. It's like
0: manipulatable because it's straight, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. like you could, they they were they were dyeing it and stuff like that. So it wasn't like everybody. Had like, right. you know, like, right, a,
3: right. like the high part, doesn't have like big black hair. Yeah, it doesn't look like she's in
0: the battle royale movie or something <laughs> like that with the, with the bangs and everything like that. Um, but yeah, uh, okay. And the, I do think I remember there's one other thing that I forgot to mention about this history, which is that um, one in 10 Korean immigrants in the 70s was part of this wig industry. And so it was a huge part of the, of the, uh, population growth and a huge part of the Korean early economy. And it also, uh, you know, it really predated a lot of the liquor stores and the, you know, bodegas and the sort of grocers that you, that you associate more, I think now, and that, you know, it ran off the same sort of low interest or no, no interest or no credit type of loan system, internal loan system that, uh, a lot of Korean small businesses operate out of. So that's sort of the background that we wanted to give you. Like Jenny, like when you were growing up, how, are you, were you aware of all of this? Like, were you aware of this sort of like economy? Or was it just like, you know, this is what your parents did?
2: Um, sure. When I was four, I was like, please tell me about <laughs> this. the <Yeah>. transnational <laughs> implications of your business. Yeah. Um, no, but,
0: did, you know, like, like how, how, I, I, how did you expect, like, what, what was it like growing up in one of these stores?
2: Well, so initially when I was very young, um, it was a boutique and it was, it looked like a beauty salon sort of, Um, and a lot of the business or a lot of the, um, uh, the business that happened was in styling these wigs into these giant bouffants or like these kind of updos. And so many of the the employees were women who were trained beauticians who hated working with live people. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) 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 Sounds
3: sounds like all of us. us.
2: Yeah, it's
0: like a it's like a coronavirus cor- coronavirus friendly industry, I guess. <laughs> yes, <that> yeah. <laughs> um,
2: and so it really didn't shift until like the mid to late '80s when it started becoming almost predominant, predominantly a black clientele. Um, in the '90s is when you start getting more of the beauty supply products. Um, there's all these hair relaxers and gels and different kinds of shampoos and things that um, I don't think any of, well, any of us would ever think to know how to use, probably. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But so at some point in my childhood, it went from being like a pretty diverse group of women who would come in for these wigs to being Mm. either very old women, white women, very old white women, or Black women. Wow, Um,
1: yeah.
2: Yeah, and I I, I remember seeing that shift. You can see it like in the advertising because it used Mm. to be like dolly and eva gabor her eva gabor's line was called it's a wig darling (laughs) oh my god
1: that's so great
2: (laughs) and then it goes to like all of the wigs being named after oprah because the wigs have names like the styles have names so it would be like janet oprah Mm -hmm. um like natalie cole had a line um right now it's all vivica a fox um she's got a huge oh interesting hair extensions um but you can kind of track it too by that by the celebrities like who yeah
0: Uh, is this were these conscious decisions that you're have you talked to your parents about this are these conscious decisions that they were making as the market changed or was it saying was it something that happened like or like was it you know i imagine that this is all sort of a network right of the beauty supply stores people talk to each other you talk to the wholesaler the wholesaler has ideas or they're pushing certain things like how, how do those decisions get made from going from like a diverse wig industry to becoming, you know, like a, primarily a black industry.
2: Um well, I mean the clientele changes when wigs started coming going out of fashion um for uh people who wanted to style their own hair or like as as hairstyles become more natural then people don't want the big wig thing. Um so that I think was just kind of following trends. Um when it starts getting into the products um that really had to do with uh, there was a shift that happened um my parents didn't want initially to go into like the the material things they just wanted to stick with hair but there was mm, some yeah. point where they had to switch over otherwise they wouldn't have a business anymore Wow. So sorry yeah ladies.
3: sorry was there a point where you realized this is like a like a korean thing it's not just your family but it's like there's a lot of uh, stores like this like not just in california but around the. us um, when you kind of realize you know it's a bigger thing
2: um personally when they started selling beauty supply products they would take me with them to um, oakland where they would get stuff um, and that was kind of a network where they would find other styles and see what's popular um, <laughs> When it was kind of like a burg in California or especially in the 80s. It was um, <laughs> from Davis. Shame on you. I'm not from a cow. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Davis,
2: my God. <laughs> no offense.
3: <laughs> so the, so the, everyone uh, in the warehouse was Korean. Was that, is that a, the vibe you got?
2: Everyone in? that I ever saw in the industry was Korean. Except for like maybe the security guards in Oakland. Um, oh, wow. And this was like, Oakland in the late 80s early 90s it was pretty it was not like super safe um and where where was was all this
0: stuff sorry so where where was all this stuff like where was where was it housed in Oakland
2: um downtown Oakland
0: okay I don't know why I asked that it's like totally I was,
3: just,
0: I was wondering if I, you know, I what my breakfast. actual thought process was. I was like, because you know, Oakland famously has really bad Korean food, and I was wondering. I've been trying to figure out why those restaurants exist on Telegraph Avenue, and I was like, oh, maybe it's like, you know, sometimes the some <laughs> wake like industry. Anyway, whatever. It's a totally stupid, selfish question. But um, <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, um, I don't know. Like, I, I that that that's all very fascinating. Did they? do they have any sort of resistance towards you know? shifting over and primarily having a black clientele
2: well they you can't have a resistance when you have a business can you
0: well sure you can i mean you can you know figure out different things to do or um you can complain about it all the time is there any <laughs> is there, is there, um, <laughs>
2: there there were a couple of their competitors who tried to stay only in the wig business um mm-hmm. they eventually died um because it, just, it was not sustainable um yeah, unless it was, like, so small that it was a very niche market for maybe, like, mm. cancer patients um, or yeah. very elderly women. So um, the price point on those has to go so high that you have to have a completely different setup for that. Um, but it really gets into, like, braids, um, mm. you know, the long um, extensions. Um, those are made out of kanikalon, which was invented in Japan. So there's another connection to a Asian. Like, oh, wow. I didn't Asia. know that. Yeah. Um, just piles and piles of hair,
1: fake hair for the grapes. So did, and, and I was looking at the census data for Sacramento earlier, like the Asian population there is a lot larger than the black population now. I'm just curious, like back then, where were people coming from? The customers, were they mostly folks from the city or were they coming from other
2: areas? No, I was from around Sacramento. Um, mm-hmm. there were, they had two locations, one in a very white neighborhood and one in a, um, a pretty black neighborhood, black and Vietnamese, mm. actually. Um, okay. The one in the white neighborhood eventually closed. It was, again, not sustainable. <laughs> <That would be laughs> a one. Um, the other one is still there. Um, mm-hmm. And now most of the business coalesces is around there. Mm. um around black neighborhoods um so i would say like initially it wasn't just in black neighborhoods it's not like yeah. the liquor stores or the bodegas maybe um gotcha the thing that i find so interesting and that's different about the wig industry and the relationship between the korean owners and the um black customers is the kind of intimacy that happens it's it's very heavily gendered right because it's mostly yeah. women um and then it is this thing that you put on your body it's so connected to this kind of daily life experience um and this i don't know like regimes of i don't know i'm gonna get too like nerdy with this (laughs) like regimes of hygiene and cleanliness, and like (laughs) like, blah 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 right yeah ideas of beauty right um i mean oh i was in the store and i was looking at all this lightning cream and i was like (laughs) What is this for? <laughs> but it I, I read about it later and it was some Lux soap brand that had it's called Ambi, A M B I. it's been around for like two hundred years or something, like wow. since British colonialism. So um, Oh it's, it's an
3: Indian. It it's an Indian soap brand, you're saying.
2: Yeah, well they had it in yeah. India and in Africa. In, oh, wow. I can't remember which country, but yeah. yeah. It was in that Lux Bowie book, Andy. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when the article it makes a big deal of the fact that a lot of the staff at these stores are not black right that they are typically korean or maybe I don't, I don't know who they were supposed to be i mean when you were reading the article what did you think about the article i guess in general but in particular uh that's interesting that you said you know i guess the staff could be mostly korean women whose job it is to kind of you know figure out quote unquote like how to uh what is like the aesthetic standards for black women and what, what would look good for a black woman how to sell things to and black customers is that is that does that sound accurate to you?
1: Wait, uh, you mean no. the, the New York Times article, Andy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they were saying that most of the the floor sellers were black, but the managers were Korean. Oh, okay. So I was curious, yeah, what that looks like in your guys' stores, Jenny?
2: That's very new, actually. Um, uh, historically, most of the employees would be like recent Korean immigrants. Um, A lot of times people who were coming to be trained so that they can open up their own shop Um, Mm -hmm. and that caused a lot of tension because all of the employees are korean (laughs) Um, they talk to each other in korean especially because they're newly arrived immigrants they didn't speak english very well um yeah and there there was a lot of my grandmother actually used to be a security guard in one of the stores (laughs) (laughs) The muscle. <laughs> yeah, she muscle. But she was kind of a, she she positioned herself as a babysitter in the corner so that women could shop and she would just watch the kids or give them snacks and stuff. Um, but there is wow. a lot of mistrust um, when I think that in this article it was interesting. And I agree with you guys that it did. It was surprising for how fair or kind of impartial it tried to be to both sides that's very unusual in talking about this kind of inter-ethnic tension. Um, but that's becoming more and more common. And I think especially with um, now the second generation, second generation Korean Americans are taking over these businesses like my brother. And yeah. he doesn't have a problem communicating with non-Korean employees, right? If anything, he has a harder time communicating with <laughs> the Korean. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, the, the intimacy thing uh, was really interesting, you know, that you mentioned, because that was something that struck mm-hmm. me as well, reading, um, you know, both, uh, I forget your friend's name, and I'm sorry Jason, I didn't cite yeah. him at the beginning. I was uh, if I had known he was your friend, I would have said something, but, you know, I was trying to pass it off as my own research. You know, <laughs> anymore. So, Jason, um, you know, it's this very interesting thing where you have these, you know, at the beginning of this industry, you have Korea, which at the time is not a wealthy country at all, and you have the women in the countryside, essentially, which is even poorer than, in the city and they're having their hair cut and they're shipping it down into factories where it's being manufactured into these hair products by also women who are working class women in korea and it's being shipped over and being sort of distributed by people recent immigrants in these cities who barely speak english but they have their own little network and that it is being generally sold to people who have no idea what the beauty standards are of the Country where it's coming from, the people who are getting their hair cut have no idea where, what the beauty standards of what their hair is going to end up looking like. You know, yeah. I think that <laughs> like, you did, it's blonde and now it's on who? You know, like I think there would be some questions about that. Not that the people would have any sort of emotional connection to it, but I imagine that they probably do have some emotional hair, uh, a connection to their own hair. And that, you know, the, the article does this wonderful job in sort of detailing uh, how all of that was sort of, you know, part of the Cold War calculus of all of this right which is that you open up 1965 you open up the immigration act in part in large part because you want to create chains like this right you want to create supply chains like this you want to open up the economy you want to sort of use south korean labor in a way to create an import economy that brings in hair and does a small niche business this is like one of them um yeah that can you like when people would come into the store that your parents owned right how, how, what were the interactions like between, you know, your parents or the people who are working there and the black clientele?
2: Mm. I don't want to throw my family under
0: the bus. <laughs> <laughs> my mom does listen to this podcast, so I can't promise that parents don't listen to this podcast. But, you know, um, speak, you can speak abstractly. Like, what would a typical, what would a typical, <laughs> what would a typical interaction be like?
2: Um, I think that the interaction that is described in the article is seems pretty accurate now. there is um, there's that intimacy of the workplace, but there's also um I mean, as with any small business, there's distrust of some clientele and not of others, right yeah um, if you're um, say, I don't know, if you have people who shoplift, there's going to be some um, distrust of some clientele, like maybe they will racially profile certain people, but um, there that's not to say that they don't have good relationships with many of their clientele. Um, like my parents at some point um, would go to church with them because they wanted to, they, my parents are very religious um, and I shouldn't say like that. My parents are very religious, <laughs> and, um, and they would get in these uh, they would get in these long conversations with their customers, and they would mutually invite each other to church. And um, like at some point when I was in college, my my dad was raving to me about how um, black churches really have the joy in them, and they really understand wow. really, they understand the joy of Jesus. <laughs> That's cool, mm. yeah. <laughs> which I I I don't know how common that is, um, but it, it's certainly worth looking at the like more of the individual interactions um, rather than looking at this kind of abstract. Um, yeah, I don't know interethnic tension. Um. And I would say too, because they are personal beauty products, it is a different relationship, like than selling liquor or food or something like that, right? Mm. Because you yeah. you have to get close, and you have to talk to each other, and you have to talk about your styles and what people want to portray of their own personality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there is like a, a very different kind of relationship with these particular products, I think.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. This is, I don't mean to like plumb too much here, but like we did. Was there a perception of the industry that they were in? Did it change significantly after the LA riots in 92?
2: That's a good question. I was trying to think about that. Um,
0: Are you, were you too young back then to remember? No,
2: I was just stupid. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> I think I was just too self-centered. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, ninety two. What I was like sixteen. Yeah, I, my head yeah. was very far up my butt. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I do remember the tension, um, and there was it was it was kind of dangerous. It was scary. I mean, we're in California, right? Um, my yeah. my mom got robbed and she got beaten and had to uh, like beaten with a baseball bat and put in, and she had to be hospitalized. Um, I don't know. Once they got robbed and somebody pushed my grandmother down, she broke her arm. Um, Wow. like Whoa. things happened um but it's uh it was a time i don't even know like who attacked them or what it was just in a bad neighborhood like it was in a sort of dangerous neighborhood so it could have been anyone they know that it's a cash business so um uh yeah. Things like that happened. What was
0: your yeah. question? I'm sorry. Oh no, just like if
3: there oh, was, because no. like
0: I'm reading. You know, I honestly, part of the book that I just wrote has a large section on this, which is just what happened to like people who owned uh, Korean grocery stores in Koreatown mm-hmm. in April 1990. Like, who were the people who went on top of the California Market with the guns? You know, and and yeah. were guarding create Kore- Like, who were those people? And One of the things that I found in my research was just that there's so many quotes given during this period of time where like Korean people say like this was at the point where I realized that like I'm not American anymore or like the cops have abandoned us. Right. Or like it's war between us. And I don't I don't actually know if I believe that it is as, you know, sort of. That much of like a I, I, I guess I just don't believe that people think that way. You know, but I do think that it was certainly a traumatic moment for a lot of people and did change the way in which they thought about their own business and doing businesses, you know, with black clientele. Like, and so I was just wondering if you're, you know, if you're, if you remember anything about that, if you were 16 at the time, maybe you had thoughts about it yourself.
2: Certainly. Um, I'm surprised that you say I'm not American anymore, because I would think that most of these business owners never thought they were American to begin with. Oh, Um, sure,
0: sure. But that I meant the protect... That's a great point. And yeah, actually, I, I did. <laughs> now that I think about it, I did write that line, which is like, these people never thought of themselves as American anymore. <laughs> the people who didn't think they were American anymore were their kids, you know, like, who were just like, fuck, I can't go back. Like, you know, like, I don't. <laughs> um, but you know, like that, the protections of the country didn't extend to them. They didn't, I don't know if they expected that or not. But some of the, but you know, this was proof that it wouldn't extend to them. So like, you know, did what? what was that period of time like for you? Or your um, parents. Either one. You can choose. If you don't want to throw your parents under the bus, you can
2: throw yourself <laughs> under the bus. <laughs> in front of the in front of the bus for love. Yes. Yeah. Um I was nervous about it, but um being where I mean, my parents were kind of typical insofar as um we lived in a very white suburb, but they did business in a non white uh-huh. suburb. Or <laughs> like not in in that area. So um uh they had also diversified, but <laughs> they were doing a lot of other things. Uh, I think they've run like every single kind of Korean business you can run. <laughs> um, uh, in '92, I was working at the deli and running that, so um, <laughs> that was a different thing. Uh, <clears throat> were those, were those all
3: created through? Out. Were those all created through Korean networks? You know, the, the you said the deli, the beauty supply store. Mm-hmm. What else? No, okay.
2: Yeah, well, the, the the wig stores, yes, and the beauty supply, um, but not the delis. That was um, my dad's own thing, and then, like, dry cleaners and stuff like that. He did everything. Um, but, you know, actually, it was kind of scarier in Sacramento in that, at that time because um, there, were, there were a lot of Vietnamese gangs, um, and I don't know if you remember this. Jay, you're in California? Are you from California?
0: No, I live there now, though. I live in Berkeley oh. now.
2: Ah, okay. Um, there was like um a, a hostage situation at a good guys in Sacramento, and it was like um Vietnamese gunmen, and that's exact. That store was uh, about a block away from my parents' store, so the tension was more with that than thinking about the LA riots. Um, sure. Yeah, that's what I remember more of. California was a yeah. mess in those days. <laughs>
1: Jenny, I was curious about um, how your parents felt about your brother taking over the business.
2: Hmm. (laughs) Um, I have thought a lot about this because, of course, we all went to college and we did the thing that we're supposed to do. He eventually took over the business because he said, as an Asian-American man, um, that he would never progress past a certain mid-level kind of managerial status. And um, he told me later, like, I, I just knew I was never going to make as much money um, working for somebody else as I would on my own, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's fairly common. Like, um, yeah, to think about. Uh, he had been in I- IT; he worked for like, but yeah, he worked for a big organization doing IT.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so I think they were glad that he joined them. Um, they've expanded since then, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, they did not want me to do it <laughs>
1: oh really why is that yeah uh, I
2: don't know they wanted me to be a lawyer <laughs> oh yeah that I know something about yeah, <laughs> yeah. maybe because uh, probably because I went to a better school than him flex <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: there's a there, uh, just like you know there's a couple things I wanted to touch on the first was sort of this and it this is where I think You know, your expertise will come in uh, handy, which is like, I'm going to talk about this moment where it shifts from being a Hong Kong based industry to being a Korean based industry and what the geopolitical things, that's such a ridiculous thing. But, you know, what happened in the world that created that opportunity for Korea? (laughs) Because I think that one of the things that I keep thinking about and, you know, like, I don't want to say anything bad about this, but, you know, I keep I can't stop thinking about this moment where where we are now being told right through that uh the only reason why the nineteen sixty five immigration act was signed was because of the civil rights movement and that um that it was that was it that people wanted the logic of the immigration law to match up with the logic of civil rights and this is what the official story is but I think it's not true in any sort of way and that Whigs actually in some way, the reason why I found it interesting was that it provides sort of a counter narrative that you know I think gets a little bit deeper into what was actually going on. So, Andy, like, what what happened? Why did why did the wig industry go from Hong Kong to to South Korea?
3: Yeah, so there's a funny anecdote in Jason's article where he talks about it was a Hong Kong thing, and it was Chinese hair, mainland Chinese hair, and uh, people might not. So there was a there was a huge embargo against China. Um, this is. You know, if you talk to like Cold War historians, some would say like Bruce Cummings, who so you know you all know of. Um, he argues that the no, Korean I don't. But... <laughs> the other two <laughs> do. The sort of big, big like Korea historian argues yeah. that the Korean War was a real beginning of the Cold War, and was, and and China was um, because you know China fights on the North Korean side. This begins the United States sort of like icing out the communists, as it were, and part of that was putting an embargo on China. Uh, Hong Kong, even though it's, you know, supposedly on the free side, it's a British colony, the border was never actually never actually that closed with China. Um, so we had this crazy situation where a lot of Hong Kong goods are going back to Europe or going to the United States, and a lot of it's coming from China and these customs agents are sort of like being told to like disaggregate Chinese stuff that comes from China, like chicken eggs that come from China versus like chicken eggs made in Hong Kong. And part of that eventually became try to differentiate hair from Chinese people in the mainland Versus hair that would be like from Korean people, and so these customs agents basically have to look at look at black hair and say is this K- Korean hair or Chinese hair, which I don't know about you. All, I don't know. I don't know if I could do that, right? Um,
0: uh, yeah, I don't think I could.
3: Yeah. So, but anyway, like, but this they eventually enforce this embargo, and that tanks the the Hong Kong wig industry, and allows the Korean wig industry to really take off in a really short amount of time. Like two
0: or three years, right? Yeah. Like it goes, it goes yeah. from being like eleven million dollars a year to being like four hundred and fifty million dollars a year. Yeah, that's like one firm. So yeah, and like it is a massive explosion that happens entirely because of a Cold War, yeah. you know, policy decision.
3: Yeah, and I think this intersects with, for instance, the New York Times article because, again, as you said, uh, you know, when you introduce the article, Jay, that you know, a lot of these store owners will say, uh, rightfully so, right? They worked really hard for this. They did this on the, with their own sweat and toil, et cetera, and that's not wrong, right? But on the other hand, it's not as if it's operating in a vacuum, right? There are certain political um, advantages they might have, let's say, being able to come to the United States um, and, getting, uh, and, and kind of getting a visa as someone who has, you know, for education or business or something, um, and also being plugged into these Korean networks where the Korean government's also kind of helping out, kind of set up, as you said, these sort of export networks where these sort of low capital, like toys, plastics wigs right things that don't require a lot of money um those industries are being set up in korea you know and historians would say like well this is the beginning of eventually like cars and tvs and then k-pop and then (laughs) etc yeah (laughs) so so yeah so like wigs are like the first you know pre like right yeah and then you know right um so so i think the the again it's not to like you know cut down the korean wig owner and say like you didn't actually like you didn't build that yourself right Not, not not saying that but uh sort of thing yes that's true but you know a lot of people work hard and there are certain geo uh, geopolitical their political economic reasons that that kind of helped the korean and probably taiwan and you know maybe hong kong japanese you know um, businesses kind of take off at this time and it has a lot to do with the united states um investment in the pacific Mm -hmm. and 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 trying to stop china and spread freedom you know market freedom to the rest of the world
0: so if we think about it sequentially then right so that's a That's sort of the political Cold War economic reasoning why the industry shifts to China. And and, I mean, I'm sorry, to Korea in the early 60s. And then you have this huge explosion. And then you have the 1965 Immigration Act, which opens up the doors. And then if you think about it stateside, then you have a lot. You have some people coming through right at 1965. Not that many people came. But around the early 1970s is when most of the Korean immigrants start coming over And then those people come over with some understanding, as we talked about before, of American culture, American economy, and, you know, with a economy that is somewhat with a product that is, you know, meant for an American uh, clientele. And then they set up sort of these monopolistic uh, supply chains, right? So, Jenny, you said that when your parents came over that they... Were helped by your uncle, right? Like, can you can you just tell us a little bit about that? Because that seems to be around the same time when all this was happening.
2: So, unfortunately, I cannot tell you much about the business end of that. But I will add that many of um, the initial wave of Korean immigrants to the U.S. were internally displaced refugees. Like, my father's family is from the northern half of the peninsula. They are not North Koreans. They never were, but. They find themselves in South Korea without, you know, a home base. So, like, there were also a lot of anchor sons yeah. that were sent to the U.S. Like second or third sons, just in case yeah. things are, were going to go down in Korea. They had a lifeline because you could come, you could have this kind of chain migration, right? Um, yeah. So I think my second, um, my my dad was like the youngest of nine. So um, I think he was <laughs> second. Uncle who came first and then fourth? Wait, fifth and sixth. <laughs> Um, but there were like two still left in Korea. Um, But yeah, so I would say the chain migration was very important to that. And then having a large population in South Korea who wasn't really from South Korea, right? Um, Oftentimes you'll find with people of our generation or my generation, at least, um, if you start talking to them, many of them will say that their families are from North Korea. Um,
0: Yeah, my my family has the same history as your family. It's like, yeah. yeah slated for execution refugee to the south mm-hmm. and I my mom's sister came over to be a nurse and then she chained the rest of them over <laughs> one, <laughs> by, one by one <laughs>
2: yeah well i mean nurse was a really good way to get here to get yeah, over to yeah. germany right that was one of the major outs
0: right. um yeah um and so but but you know the you're the first uncle, or one of the first uncles that came over, started in this in the in the wig supply or the wig the wig industry. Is that right?
2: I think he hooked them up somehow. I don't really like that uncle um, has a very complicated history that I don't that um, was shrouded. It's okay, in we don't need to know. About so, yeah. uh, <laughs> so let's stop talking about that uncle.
1: Yeah,
0: um, that's okay. We don't need to. We don't need to personalize it. So let's just say that. Right. That this this sort of monopolized thing happens, and then much like you said, it starts out in swap meets. It starts out in flea markets. It starts out as stalls, and then those stalls, you know, create informal networks of supply. Now that supply becomes completely, you know, I don't know. Essentially, just becomes Koreans giving stuff. You know, selling stuff to Koreans, and then there's a wholesaler that's Korean. And then the wholesaler has a connection back to Korea where they get all the stuff, right? And that in the end, that's, you know, the sort of seed for 20 years of business or, you know, I, I don't know, at this point, 40 years of business. Um, 40, yeah. And uh, and then as the clientele changes, the market moves to meet that new clientele. And then, at some, you know, at the beginning, it's like, well, you know, some white housewives also want wigs. And then by the end, it's, you know, it becomes an almost exclusively black clientele. Um, The thing that I want, you know, we've gotten to this point where like, I, I, I I don't really know. Do you think that we are talking about all this in like a constructive way? Because it just seems like the conversation gets so tracked into like one argument or another, like Tammy, like what, what do you think? Like, is there, is there like a good way to talk about this? Like, does it require, you know, like a, at this point, 44 minute long, preamble about like (laughs) geopolitical um connections and and histories of immigration and refugees or or is there like a faster way to think about this tension
1: (laughs) well i'm not um, asking
0: for you to say yes i'm literally just asking because yeah
1: Well, no, I think these 44 minutes have been essential. I mean, I'm glad that (laughs) Jenny and Andy's friend Jason, you know, wrote this piece and that we're all kind of thinking in this way about the larger socioeconomic and geopolitical policies that make these industries happen, right? Because some of the stuff seems very accidental, like why does a certain population get into a certain industry? But there's always some sort of interesting backstory that I think reveals a lot about you know, relationships um, between different countries and groups. There's a phrase in the piece that stuck out to me in Jason's piece, not the New York Times piece, which is imperial fetish commodity. <laughs> and I think what, <laughs> you know, very like jargony, too smart for Jay and me. But um, I think what that gets at is this idea that, you know, the, the fact of the US military presence and the US, you know, sort of neo colonial presence in East Asia has really bolstered these sorts of, you know, supply chains and this business to develop. Um, Interestingly, like this week in my class here at Montana, I was teaching this article that talks about um, Alabama and Georgia um, auto supply companies and manufacturing plants where they manufacture car parts. And there's so many Korean and Japanese companies that have subcontracted plants that are also like Korean and Japanese owned and also German owned in the South, of course, to chase the non-union states. Um, But I was thinking so much about just like how, you know, globalization has been flipped on its head and that like, you know, Mm -hmm. basically like these Asian states that we, that our parents left because they were impoverished (laughs) are now subcontracting to mostly like black, poor, white and Latino workers in the South because that's Mm -hmm. the cheapest place to get the shit done. You know, And it's extremely dangerous as a result and everything. So I mean, the reason I bring that up is because I think like in the New York Times article, that's a personal story that deals with like very like ground level interactions between people, but doesn't have a lot of space to get into these larger historical discussions. And I'm glad that we can do that here because I think it's such a huge part of the story.
0: Right, the subtext of the Times story and a lot of this conversation, especially how it's portrayed in Hollywood, is that like, if the Koreans were just less, p- more polite, you know? Right, that, and, yeah. And if the... If the that's the if story. The, <laughs> yeah, it, that's basically the story, right? Like, I remember I watched, I don't remember what show it was, but there's like this, like, Disney, Disney sitcom when I was a kid. Not a kid, but like maybe when I was in my teens. And I remember one of the... Kids was like a Filipino kid, but he's playing a Korean kid. He's clearly Filipino, which you know drove <laughs> my mom crazy. I don't know if I've imagined the show or not. But yeah, I'm what is sure the show? Just, but like at some point there was like this whole thing where it was like you know there's a black there's a black friend of the Filipino kid and he gets in a fight with this guy's dad who owns a store, and the whole episode is about you know uh, the dad puts the money down on the counter right and doesn't and then puts lifts up his hand and the oh, kid feels touch. like it's disrespectful yeah. because he's not handing it to him and then but what the the kid doesn't understand is that the father is doing that as a form of respect <laughs> but they don't understand each other because of the cultural divide. <laughs> that story that one like don't touch the money story is like the basis of like of the liberal understanding of the black korean conflict right like it is like, totally the, the, the He's up. It was just like, how do you hand the money over? Yeah. Which has always seemed so stupid. But the people who fall for it the most, I think, are like sort of second generation Koreans, right? Like second generation Koreans are the ones who hate their parents <laughs> because they, they also believe that the reason why all this conflict exists is because their parents were rude. And a lot of the time, they the reason why they think their parents were rude is because they fucking watched their parents be rude, right? Because their parents were rude. Uh- <laughs> well, rude, really,
2: I think, is hard to say. Like It just means that, we, that the second generation korean americans have internalized like white politeness and i think the thing that is so interesting well it's
0: that- not go ahead i'm sorry yeah Oh,
2: so the thing that's so interesting to me now about this industry and looking at something like this article is that is there uh, the industry has like removed the white center like the the creamy white core of this industry, right? (laughs) Initially, initially black women have all these hair products to make themselves have straight hair, to have good hair, right? Good hair. And that's a mimicry of, or not mimicry, but it like alludes to kind of white ideals of beauty. Um, But now if you look at the styles, they don't have anything to do with white aesthetics anymore. And so Mm -hmm. where it's come now is very interesting because... The business that started around this thing, like even like American global geopolitics and like these conceptions of beauty and style and whatever have totally gone in this other direction. So now if you look at the space, there isn't a there isn't a a creamy white center
0: anymore. (laughs) That's Uh, interesting. Yeah. So then the, the it doesn't it's not mediated through that sort of assimilationist thing. It's just pure like buyer to seller dem- uh yeah. demand. There's yeah. no like, oh well these products are the are sort of dictated by are you know dictated by white beauty norms and then they're mediated through like a Korean merchant that is selling to like a to 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 black clientele. That's just gone now. Uh that yeah. is interesting. When when did that happen, Dean? <coughs> like is that is that a recent
2: phenomenon? I think that is recent. Um because when you read stuff about the la riots and about the black korean conflict it always has to do with like white flight from the from whatever these neighborhoods and then like Mm -hmm. koreans taking over these businesses and then it always still kind of focuses around this like focal point of like white assimilation or of respectability politics or something like that right um yeah that's not where this industry is anymore um when that happens gosh I don't know, I guess like as hip-hop culture really like takes over as a dominant culture maybe, um, and mm. that kind of style and aesthetic becoming, you know, like very emblematic of American style, um, I, I would say that, that has a lot to do with it, um, which then like connects to like K-pop and all this stuff, right, because now they're like trafficking back and forth these like imagery and this the, this like sexuality and stuff, right? Um, but
0: right. yeah. <laughs> um I yeah, it's it's uh that that the point you bring up it interesting what Tammy is thinking about is just like do we have a uh, you know, like what is the I don't know, like what's the sort of central tension that's expressed, you know, between how, how is it expressed between blacks and koreans in this one space do you think like how if it's not just like you know my parents were rude to these people and that's why (laughs) they burned down their store or you know latasha harlins is why they burned down the store these are the accepted narratives that we have like do you is there is that the right way to think about it do you think tammy i don't know i'm doing like this like you know like McLaughlin thing, my friend listened to the my friend listened to the show and he was like he was like you said your thoughts Andy and I was and he was like that's a that's a McLaughlin, McLaughlin McLaughlin group used to say and I was like I was doing it half ironically you know inspired by the McLaughlin hour okay so Tabby Kim your thoughts like, oh, your thoughts on the black black Korean on the black Korean complex well
1: I thought. The most interesting part about the New York Times article was when the Korean owner, Mr. Na, says um, it's not about race or racism, why it's so hard for black people to get into this market. It's just survival of the fittest. Competition, and I uh, mean, yeah, basically he had like a very cold sort of like <laughs> economic analysis of like what's going on here. And in the same breath as he says, I really hope I can help give advice to Crystal to start her own business someday. He never says, I'm going to retire and give this shop to her. You know, there's something very, I think that's why the, the personal, we need to depersonalize some of this conversation because sure, it's personal and it's intimate. The way that Jenny described all that stuff with gender, especially is so real, but it's also just business. And like I think, like you know, getting under those relationships and understanding like what's in the minds of people, both at the level of the individual business, but in the kind of supply chains that we've been talking about, is a more appropriate way to understand this.
3: Well, I mean, it's business, but it's, you get the sense that he would not be opposed to another Korean person competing, right? So the way that c- competition gets drawn up is still. I don't know if racial is the right word, but national or ethnic ethnicized, right? It's like, it's not there's... that he was
1: objecting to the competition. He was he was trying to explain why wholesalers don't do business with certain black owners.
3: Right. So right. so if but but like, you're saying if you're saying if it's just pure business, they would just go to cheapest or best business deal with the other person, no matter what their skin color is, right? But it is oh, still mediated, yeah. me, right, mediated by the sense of there's an in-group, there's an out group, which is why I also kind of latched onto sure. that quote. Tammy thinking like this is a really telling quote because I think he's actually like telling on himself in terms of he thinks racism is about, like you said, Jay, uh, being impolite and like not putting cash in someone's hand. But in fact, racism is probably, and I think what the article is trying to get at is that um, the sort of material differences between groups, economic differences between groups matters more. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's also what a lot of the um, people speaking in the interview are saying in terms of like the black customers who are telling this woman, like Crystal Holmes, like, why are you working for him? Why don't you open Mm -hmm. your own store? So I think that was interesting. And I think this article is really pushing hard, this idea that to solve racism in 2020, um, you know, Black customers should buy from Black owners which you know i don't know like what i think about that but that's interesting because i think that idea is actually gaining currency um yeah right and so i can don't I introduce yeah.
2: a new wrinkle to this then <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> um, yeah yeah to your point right there's a, a, a famous example i guess to to me <laughs> famous um of a black business owners <laughs> association of black wig and beauty supply owners association in oakland um I think it was supposed to be all all of Northern California, and they they had these meetings where that were convened by Egyptian owners of a huge beauty supply warehouse, who positioned themselves as African Americans because oh, wow.
3: but they're the but they're Egyptian.
2: That's they're so like shit.
3: they're like Egyptian immigrants, right?
2: Yeah, they're Egyptian immigrants, yeah. but they're trying to have some like African solidarity, and in. So there's this kind of <laughs> <it's> dimension. <incredible>. <laughs> it, um, it was pretty ballsy. But, um, is, wow.
3: is, are you saying it worked or no?
2: It did work, yeah. Um, they felt, I think there was a sense that it was closer than like these Koreans. But now <laughs> you also have all these braiding shops, like the Nigerian braiding shops and yeah. the Senegalese braiding shops, right? Um, this is another space where the, now these products are getting sold. And that is a closer, you know, um, like racial or ethnic identification so it, it, it does get used utilized in those ways yeah.
3: um but i wonder it's if like, still, it's can't... still a,
0: it, but it's still an immigrant business right like the senegalese and nigerian operating yeah. shops right African yeah, and, and, yeah. and it follows patterns of immigration of when people arrived so mm-hmm. you know, like koreans arrived in the 70s and a lot of the senegalese and the and uh nigerian populations arrived later than that so perhaps it's like some sort of Hannah, that I I. I don't know, Tammy, to answer your question. Uh, that's fascinating, though. I did, I had, I did not know that. That you know that there had that that Egyptian detail is, I can <laughs> yeah. you know in a very like sort of like horrible way. I can imagine what their imagery was like. You know, like they have like an onk and shit like that. <laughs> that like, <laughs> um, um, but dude, uh, to, I to, to address the point that you made, I do think that there's a way to sort of access both the uh, personalized part of it, which I don't think that we should discount because sure. a lot of the controversies that. That come up around this are about personal interactions you know mm-hmm. and the personal interactions aren't just you put your money down in a different way the personalized interactions are like there is video of a guy coming out and body slamming a woman in the island accusing her of you know yeah. like that was one of the big ones that blew up it was like that korean store owner who's basically just body slams this customer in in the store and these lead to you know protests they lead to boycotts they lead to a lot of dissatisfaction and it is interesting how this has become, you know, black beauty stores have become this one point where it is, it's not about like liquor stores anymore. It's, it really is this one area is where the focus of black owned businesses, I think is the most intense. Like it, it, would you say that that's right? It's beauty shops and that it is in direct conflict with crayons, right? Like, like there's mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, this is another thing I wrote about. I don't know. Why I'm, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to go away the things that I'm writing about my book, but there's like, you know, there's a lot of stuff about, um don't buy from asians type campaigns right like you see that on social media a lot when when black beauty shop owners open up sometimes it is an explicit Hmm. call out to their neighborhood saying come to me you know like this is how we can do it you know we don't and the reason why they say don't first of all they say you know we should support black businesses but they also say like you know asians are rude so there is a personalized element to it but i do think that you know to discuss that you have to understand all sorts of stuff about it, which you know, I hope that we're doing mm-hmm. right now. I learned so much about this stuff and I, you know, yeah. it made me rethink the I, chapter I'd written about it. Cause I was like, man, I didn't think about it in, <laughs> yeah. this, in this intense sort of way. But, um, the one point I the, the last point I want to sort of focus on is like, you know, like, um, this moment now where you have between like Chicago, Milwaukee, um well, not Milwaukee, but Kenosha and um you know cities around the country where you have once again sort of korean owned businesses being targeted sort of beauty supply stores being targeted in ferguson it happened as well right um baltimore baltimore um what like what what's the proper way to talk about this that 's what i'm most interested in because I think that like after the nineteen ninety two riots there was a we talked about this a little bit in our panel episode do you remember that episode where we just talked about like panel politics (laughs) and uh um, panel politics there are a lot of books written and i actually the 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 the, your friend's article cited the main book that came out of the 1992 riots which is by this woman nancy abelman and this guy john lee and it's uh it's called blue Blue Dreams. dreams and blue dreams is this sort of projection of Panel politics onto the 1992 riots. And it happened right after the riots was written. And it's this idea that, like, everything is super complex, you know? Like, there are all sorts of different people who feel different ways. And actually, and in the end, the sort of aim of it, I think, maybe I'm wrong, is sort of defuse the core of it, right? Which is like, is this an intractable problem? Right? Is it always going to be an intractable problem? And it seems like at, uh, within like our circles, right? Which is sort of like whatever prestige media academy, that it is very difficult to say this is an intractable problem. We would much rather believe that it is not an intractable problem because we want to exist in some sort of like multicultural world where we have friends of different types and we don't want to think about this sort of stuff. And we're like, oh yeah, that's my parents' generation. You know, this is what my parents say we can laugh about it. But um, I don't know. Is it, in, is it dishonest to talk about this stuff in that sort of way? Like this article, also, this one in the New York Times also felt like it was part of that tradition. Right. Which is like, well, maybe there is a way out of all of this um, Like, is a fundamental problem that Koreans have basically a monopolistic stranglehold on this industry and are not going to give it up. And until they give it up, you know, there's nothing's really going to be fixed. I guess that's the way that we should think about it.
3: You're saying this article agrees that's intractable or you think this article is actually optimistic that it could be fixed?
0: Well, it focuses a lot on personal interactions. That's all I'm saying. Oh. Yeah.
1: And it posits what you were saying, Andy, in part the sort of black business solution. Yeah. Right? yeah. As liberation in a way. And yeah. I don't know, Jenny, I'd be curious to hear like, if your brother has thoughts on this. I mean, obviously he relates to his customers in a very different way than your parents did. Mm -hmm. but what is it like and you know if god forbid there were some sort of uprising in that area like does he think he would be targeted does he feel like an antagonism with his customer base
2: he doesn't feel an antagonism actually this did come up very recently because of um blm right um yeah he i i asked him or i sent him an image of like asians for um for Black Lives or something like what you know the poster with the fist mm-hmm. and yeah. I was like you should put this up in your store and he was like no I'm not going to pander like that they're just gonna get really upset He <laughs> <And I> was <laughs> like what do you mean like solidarity man <laughs> he was like no and he was like okay I'll listen to you I'm going <laughs> to ask my employees what they think because he has um, a lot of employees of different races, but um, he also has a lot of young black women who work at the store. And he came back at the end of the day and was like, they're evenly split. Half of them think that I'm pandering. And it would be <laughs> I think it's great. And he's like, so.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so he has, the, he has the deciding vote.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, so in the end, he did nothing. But um, he was like, you know, at the end of the day, what I can do is continue to treat my customers with respect. And they keep yeah. coming to me because I'm not rude. I was like, but you're not rude because you're not from Korea. (laughs) 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 You're not rude because you're American. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. But yeah, so you're worried about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's specifically come up just now. And, you know, with the quarantine and everything, like – they ended, this is very interesting. They were able to open up a, a lot faster than other spaces because they were considered an essential business. Oh,
1: yeah, because hygiene stuff. and Hygiene yeah. stuff, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wow.
3: So they were, yeah. like, happy they could open and the employees could get their jobs back and get paid and all that.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, That's amazing.
0: Wondering... 50-50 split there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 50 <laughs> i always felt that way you know i went to protest here in oakland at the beginning of the george floyd stuff and i saw these two kids with a yellow peril supports black power sign and they're like two kids who went to cal i think or something like that and i was like you know they're kids of immigrants like myself post 1965 and i was like it just doesn't work man you know (laughs) like it's like it just doesn't work i'm sorry you know like i don't even need to like nerd out and just be like oh uh, you know the history of that is so different, and back then, like uh, you know, like oh, Richard yeah. Aoki grew up in this neighborhood, and he's one of the <laughs> signers. That it was it, the interesting part of it was like literally a block away from like the you know where that photo, that famous photo of Aoki is taken, where he's holding that sign, for the for the Huey Newton stuff. Um, I don't know. It was uh, that's that's interesting that that the thought would come out that you know this is pandering; they're going to target it. They're going to target the store more. It It makes sense, you know.
2: Um, Well, so my brother and I were evenly split on that. We grew up in those neighborhoods or we grew up in this business and he thought it was pandering and I thought it was solidarity. Yeah,
1: there
3: you go. (laughs) 50-50. Well, if if he does, it is pandering though because he doesn't believe in it. So that's kind of
1: the... Thank you. I kind of feel like
3: thinking about the article now in broader strokes, isn't it kind of saying that wouldn't it be great if these black customers or black employees could follow the path of the Koreans, before them, and create their own networks, and to create their own sort of, um, you know, ethnically organized merchant, merchant and capital networks and credit networks? And I don't know, is that like model minority? <laughs> is that another version model <laughs> minority? Like, uh, no,
0: come on. The the but the takeaway
3: the <laughs> takeaway take being like you know because I mean the article begins with you know both of these people grew up quite poor. Right? Yeah, and like Mr. Na winds up, you know, successful too, right? In in, in by by a certain metric, and this st- kid
0: goes to like Columbia or something like that. Right? She lives in right.
3: Brooklyn, right. which you know, yeah. uh, which I thought was like, oh, that's too predictable.
1: Code <laughs> language for <the> Ivy <laughs> Yeah, um,
3: but I also, I mean, the other thing I thought was, you know, this is an article where they're just like ready to do the black-white thing, but then it's a Korean um as the uh, yeah. other group as, as instead of a white person like and i think the journalist I, I would kind of push back i think the journalist kind of um wasn't quite sure how to handle that and um that could be seen as a weakness of the article like is
0: like a white guy and writing for the times is very difficult you know it's more the yeah, Times time i'm surprised it's it Because um, oh, yeah. oh, yeah? it's more <laughs> Yeah, because it's like, they. I think that they would want one of the two polls, right, mm. um, where it's all about personal interaction and it's all about a history of, like, discontent. And you mentioned Natasha Harlan, which I think it was mentioned in this article, right, um, and Sunja Do, and then, or the other side of it, which is, you know, I don't know, something that, like, Brett Stevens or somebody would write about, like, the dignity of the Korean shop owner or something like that <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I, I like I actually I thought this article was pretty good and you know I don't mean to like slander it I you know it's a mess because it has to be a mess because the, the whole situation is a mess but I don't know I thought that um I don't know I hope that we could bring a little bit of context of it to it for the listeners because I do think that the most interesting part is you know why is it like this you know why is it that like, you know, why is it that Korean immigrants coming over in 1971, 1973, 1974 can open up these businesses, right? And the answers are pretty embedded in Cold War, US policy. And that um, if you don't understand that, then I think that you've sort of missed a large part of the story, at least the most interesting part of the story. We don't need to place like moral assignations. If the personal interactions part is the most important part, part to you, then it doesn't mean that you're like stupid. It just means, you know, I would say that it's yeah. like not a particularly interesting um, understanding of all of it. Yeah, I don't know. But the the what about this question of intractability? And then I think Jenny, we've kept you for an hour and eight minutes. <laughs> and so, um, and like, do you do you feel like that? Do you think that we, there needs to be some acknowledgement that this problem is a, a huge problem? That it's one that will continue, or do you think that, or do you not actually believe that? Um, do you think that we are talking about these things in progressively better ways?
2: Um, hmm. I think it's both. There, are, And I think this has to do with the fact that it, there is still a lot of Korean immigration to this country. Mm-hmm. Um, with some, some of the other businesses where um, ethnic groups leave that sector, um, then it changes over to another group or, you know, whatever. But this there's still, it's constantly getting refreshed by new Koreans. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) who still don't speak maybe English very well. Um, So that makes it still kind of a problem of like maybe um, culture clash, even if there are businesses like my family's that has been around for 40 years. And now my dad even says like, I'm more American than I am Korean, right? Especially with what I do, like teaching contemporary Korean. He's like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about because that's not where I came from, right? Uh, yeah. uh, right. <laughs> but he was like, you don't know anything. man." like, actually, I, I just don't know where you came from. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so is it intract- it's intractable? Um, I have asked about the Black-owned businesses, and my mom is always like, you know, um, at the end of the day, um, we, we can undersell them by price, and so the customers will go to these other places for a while. But we've been around for so long, and we buy in such volume that we can. We're just cheaper, so they're going to come back, right? Um, at the same time, Walmart now sells this stuff, and so my parents are worried because yeah. Walmart can totally undercut them, right?
3: Um, <laughs> so that's yeah. the end of the story. Walmart just kills everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and then Amazon kills
2: Walmart. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Actually, my brother does sell through Amazon now. They they have okay. Like, some yeah, they have a so, store. Um, yeah. Yeah, so the plot thickens. <laughs>
1: yeah, holy shit.
0: <laughs> is there anything that we missed, Andy, Tammy, Jenny, that you want to talk about about this topic? There, there, I think that we, I, you know, this, I don't, you know, I do you rank our episodes and how well we've done. I think this is great. Yeah. I don't know, not to pat ourselves on the back, but I think <laughs> I it's been fascinating for me. I learned all sorts of yeah. stuff. Um, is there anything that we missed?
2: There was something I kind of wanted to ask Andy, actually. Um, Yeah, go for it. Because when I got interested in studying this at all is because my mom said, oh, it's so stressful because of gang warfare in China. And I was like, what the hell does that have to do with you? And she was like, because the hair comes from China. And so it's come full circle. And now the hair is coming from the It is now from China? Right? China, Indonesia, Uh, India. (laughs) Yeah. So what does gang warfare have to do with it? Um, I don't know. She said that they were like struggling over price of hair, and they were kidnapping yeah, yeah, women yeah. for their hair. Um, and this has to do with the liberalization of China and stuff. So yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. sure, <laughs> yeah. what's going on?" Um, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
3: I mean, I don't know if gang is the right word. It'd probably just be like, "What's?" It's like a fine line between like business network to mafia. You know, it's like uh, <laughs> that's what that's what we're probably talking about, right? Like it's it's a network that probably has. You know, like the, the triads and the tongs and all that. It's probably not all that yeah. different. And they just kind of control access to all that stuff. I am curious where it comes from. You know, like that museum um, uh, exhibition, Bodies? Or mm-hmm. you know what I'm talking about? The one that was like mm-hmm. big it's in the, the one 2000s. Of
1: Chinese bodies. Yeah,
3: apparently it was, like all Chinese. I never went to it. I think like on principle, I knew I didn't want to actually see that. But it's like, I think they were just like random Chinese corpses that they, that they like shipped out. So I don't know. I think there's a lot of, mm-hmm. there's a lot of unseemly things happening that China exports
1: have you guys mm. all seen the Chris Rock documentary, Good Hair? No. Yeah.
2: No. It's and like he did what did always,
1: you think? Uh, yeah, I was gonna say, Jenny, like from that, my <laughs> takeaway was that the and and I think Patrulus's history actually tracks us a little bit about the movement of hair to India. But he, he goes, yeah, unpacks that economy of like basically like Indian hair coming to Koreans to be
2: sold to blacks.
3: Rock goes yeah. to India.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Oh wow. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So another, well, this is a whole another dimension of this that's like, we, I'm sure you don't have time for. Um, Indian hair is not kosher and Orthodox women wear wigs, human hair oh, wigs. Wow. So they will wear Chinese hair, but mm. not Indian hair. It's not Wait, kosher. Chinese people, yeah. eats, Chinese
3: people eat so much pork. What the hell? That's,
2: a, that's exactly what I said, but it's not kosher because it's um, it's given as a sacrifice, a African religious sacrifice. A, it's a religious sacrifice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh. The extraction so of the hair is
2: commercial, but I know. Yeah, so it doesn't have to do with what they're eating. It has the to pork do with doesn't matter.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, because right. yeah, I just said like
1: the
2: same thing. Like, like
1: <laughs> Shellfish
3: and pork all the time. Yeah, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, that's so. That's yeah, really yeah. interesting. The
2: keratin really comes from the shellfish. <laughs> <laughs>
3: okay. I mean, it doesn't get um, weird, but there's also something to do with our chromosomes in Asia that makes our hair so tough. But I don't know. We have to talk
0: about that. Oh, race science, <laughs> I know exactly.
1: Tanky Andy became race science Andy real quick. Yeah, race science Andy is
0: gonna talk about hair carettin now for the next forty minutes in the SAT. Um, but, um, all right, well, I, you know, I think that that's. Uh, I don't know if I think that we've we're now at an hour fourteen minutes and um, yeah, Jenny, I want to thank you for coming on. This was great, and yeah, um, thanks for inviting
2: me. This
0: was fun. Okay, so we have a uh, we have a new segment that we want to do every single week, and it's uh, you know we found that we sort of talk about the same things over and over again. I don't think that's bad. We have an election coming up, and also you know (laughs) that it's a more natural conversation, but. We want to do something called, I don't know what the actual name of this is going to be, but it's something like, well, what should we know about in the world? <laughs> and uh, this comes out of the fact that like, every single time we talk about what we should talk about, I basically like send some tweet that has annoyed me. You know, and Tammy's <laughs> always like, there's like a freedom movement in this country. And I'm like, listen, this tweet is super annoying. And, so, <laughs> and because I own the recording equipment, I generally went out in these fights. But I am started to realize that Tammy is correct that we should talk about things that are happening in the world and not just tweets that are annoying. And so uh, we haven't done a single tweet this entire week, you know. So uh, we're off to a better start. Um, Tammy, uh, what what like what what's happening that you? What is the thing this week that you think that we should know about or that we should talk about?
1: Yeah, so I wanted to ask you guys what you think about what's going on in Thailand, which is a major democracy movement that has been erupting basically since 2014, but has really intensified recently. And like in Hong Kong and very connected to Hong Kong in some ways, which we can discuss, is composed of really, really young people, like really inspired and inspiring college and high school students who are rising up not only against the military junta, but against the royal family, which is unheard of in Thailand because it's basically been criminalized with threat of (laughs) corporal punishment um, Thailand has a, a sort of British style, you know, constitutional monarchy theoretically. Um, but it's approaching something that's much more, um, brutish right now. And, um, I'm just really inspired by the people who are doing the work there. So yeah. Have you guys been following this a little bit?
0: A little bit. Yeah. Andy, what do you think?
3: Yeah. So I was trying to read up on it. Uh, Cause I know Tammy wanted to talk about it. And what really, <laughs> stru- what really struck me was like, look, I don't, I can't claim to know anything special, uh, uh, special or particular about Thailand, so I think by default I'm making a lot of comparisons, right, with like the places <laughs> I do know. But I actually kind of think that's not um, that's not like what's, that's not imperialistic, right? That's not like um, unfounded because I think even the people in Thailand, you know, it's a it's a big country, yeah. but it's also a country embedded within a larger region. And even if this were Europe, they would all be like, you know, connected to each other much more. I think language makes it seem like these places are actually really far apart when, you know, Thailand's like contiguous and connected to, you know, like Myanmar and China and and like not that far from Hong Kong and not that far from, you know, Taiwan even. And um, I think the connections are, are, are deep and thick. As you said, there was... Uh, the protest movements, right, are th- are taking inspiration from each other. I had seen yeah. this uh, since the spring, this milk tea alliance thing,
1: yeah,
3: uh, on social media. Which I don't know if that's just another social media thing that's like not not real, or maybe it's like overblown because it's on social media. But which is to say mm-hmm. that
1: mm-hmm.
3: Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Thailand—is that correct? The youth, mm-hmm. yeah. high school, college age, kind of see themselves as all fighting the same fight against some sort of authoritarian, monarchical, you know, undemocratic state, um, and they all drink boba or, or
1: <laughs>
3: thai tea or hong kong <laughs> hong kong whatever right uh, but i also kind of think what's interesting what i was trying to also try to understand is this is where my brain goes right is to what extent is does the thai economy have to do with this Definitely. and to what extent is it about the thai economy uh just kind of inevitably because of its location is embedded within like by now the chinese dominant east asian economy but it used to be part of as we just kind of kind of talked about with Jenny, the United States dominant version of the sort of Asia Pacific economy and kind of the the ups and downs it's gone through, basically being kind of uh, not like well,
0: fa- also a tourist economy. Yeah, exactly. Like are largely tourist, right? Economy, yeah. yeah. All these all these places
3: are dependent upon some sort of foreign capital to some extent. It could be cu- customers, it could be investment, it could be real estate, right? But like you know Singapore. Vietnam, they're all kind of in the same boat. So um, yeah, there's something interesting going on with how these how Vietnam kind of sh- probably should be more I guess discussed within the East Asia context, but you know, for for whatever reason, you know, it's kind of obviously yeah. on the on the periphery.
0: Well Tammy, like what what that I mean, what what what, what do these kids want?
1: Yeah. So these my kids...
0: Melvin Bragg <laughs> in our
1: time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, the Passive best podcast me. to emulate, yeah,
0: right? Yeah. Um, Tammy came from Cave. Like, what do what, what these children want? What do these kids want?
1: And <laughs> so then,
0: I, I, then, then, I, then I cut you off, like, yeah. towards, towards, like okay, okay, Andy, A- A- Andy, okay, okay. <laughs> okay so Tammy, Tammy what, what, what do these kids want?
1: Oh, well, yeah, so I think the sort of economic piece is important, but maybe not as critical to these people because they are mostly still in school, right? Mm-hmm. But what that economy represents is a kind of like, as Andy was saying, like kind of an imperial force. So both the kind of Sino-Tai, you know, businesses that have been privileged by the military junta and that the military junta has been trying to prop up, but also just a sense of chaos and not having a say in their government. So- um, Thailand has been uh, a constitutional monarchy since, the, since like 1932. And it's had 17 constitutions yeah. and just a series of military juntas over and over again. And so I think people are tired. I mean, of course, the young people haven't lived through that. But even the chaos they've experienced in their lifetimes is just too much. And I think they're now at a point where They're wondering, like, why do we have a crazy king who wears crop tops and throws lavish birthday parties for his poodle and lives in Germany? Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) why do we have a prime minister who is a military thug? You know, when we are in a developed economy, we are in a region of the world that is becoming very wealthy. We are educated and we're sick of this shit, you know, and then throw the pandemic on top of that. And then their neighbors. And people that they're in touch with on the internet in Hong Kong and Taiwan are rising up and they're like, we're gonna do this too. And one of the fun things that people will see on social media is that they've adopted a lot of iconography, both of the Hong Kong protests, but also Hunger Games. So the three-fingered salute of Hunger Games has been yeah. the kind of universal <laughs> symbol of the Thai protests since 2014. So there's a lot going on here, but I, but it is a pro-democracy movement and that's how best to understand it.
0: Yeah. So like. Every every one of these uprisings has a vision of nationalism behind it, right? So, um, you know, whatever protests there might be in terms of, you know, let's overthrow this and let's replace it with something else. Like, what what is that? Do you have a sense of what they want Thailand to be? Yeah. Um, because uh, you know, I don't know. Is it is it is it a resistance towards it being so about um, international tourism? Is it about like you know? Is it something strange about you know, like gender roles, like what mm-hmm. what is the what is the vision that they want to create?
1: Yeah, well, it seems to me that it's it's not about an absolute abolition of the monarchy. First of all, it's about a kind of reform of the monarchy to get it to a place where I think, I mean, reading what they say is something more like the kind of Disneyland England version of a monarchy, <laughs> where they're sort of you know defanged and um, you know kind of yeah, actually, the real power in the country is through elected power. And that's not the case right now. And so for instance, like in 2018, the Junta supervised like a kind of election, but it was more or less a sham election. I mean, but this kind of progressive party that they were pushing on the center left actually got a bunch of votes, right? But they don't, but then right after that, the courts banned that party. So I think definitely having a fair say, having any kind of real representative politics is something that these people are after. I think the economic piece is a little bit harder to, to find.
3: Well, I think, I mean, okay, so this is obviously my brain reading economics into everything. Um, I do think like a lot of their complaints, though, is like, as you said, there are a lot of monarchies or my, my mind goes to the Japanese emperor that's you know ostensibly still there and it's like continuous for thousands of years. And you can make an argument and they did make an argument like in Japan that it's actually good to have it around for stability reasons. But unlike all those other monarchs or emperors in Thailand, like you said, this monarch uh, who is completely you know in absentee mm-hmm. actually has a say in politics and economics. Yes. And what that winds up being usually is just this huge... Um, you know, mishmash of government plus companies plus monopoly and um, w- such that there's really, it feels undemocratic, both politically, but also economically. And I think that is part of a piece of, you know, they're calling for democracy, just like they're calling for democracy in places like Hong Kong. Sure. And, you know, this is like my interpretation, right? But I'm kind of reading into that. Yeah, part of democracy also just means the feeling of powerlessness, as you said, Absolutely. because they, they are a yeah. modern society. They do participate in, you know, they, they all have jobs. They all make money. They contribute to the economy, and yet they don't get to see the the rewards of their labor. Um, I think you know that's my from afar. That's kind of what I think. Well, as the
0: economic situation. The part of the context is that um, economically, Andy is that because so much of Thailand's economy is based in tourism, they've actually been pretty hard hit by yeah. the coronavirus. Yeah. Um, they've had the largest downturn in all of Asia, I think. So GDP is going to contract 8.1%. You know, nobody really knows when people are going to be comfortable to travel again, but I don't think it's going to be soon, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, especially in a place, you know, like where, you know, all sorts of racist assumptions and, you know, about the cleanliness of those places is going to sort of keep people away from them unless they're actually super rationalists and they're like, oh, I should just go to Vietnam, you know, but people don't really think that way. Right. So Thailand has been
3: successful though, like Vietnam. Yeah, sure.
0: In terms of dealing with the coronavirus, I'm just talking about when people are going to go back to Southeast Asia for tourism related or, or even when Southeast Asia is going to have them back, you know, I would love to personally go to Vietnam. I'm not sure if I can go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like, you know, in the end, like 15% of, of, of Thailand's uh, GDP comes from tourism, which actually sounds kind of small to me. I assume that it was higher than that. Yeah. All right. These people are facing an incredibly uncertain future. Yeah. So, the question that I had, Tammy, was just is there part of this youth movement that is a rejection of, of Thailand as this vision of a tourist industry where white people come to party and stuff like that? <laughs> like, is that part of the nationalistic <laughs> turn? No, oh, because, you know, like that's part of yeah, what yeah. the, that's what part of the populist politics and career are about, right? It's the rejection of American influence and American corporate interests, American military interests. Like, is there, is there sort of an isolationist bend to any of this?
1: I haven't seen that articulated in any of the stuff that I've been reading. I mean, obviously I'm not reading in Thai, um, but no, I think it's much less focused on that and much more focused on um, sort of writing the ship itself it you know, on on its own terms. And so, again, I don't, it doesn't seem like most of the people are calling for a complete change or revolution in the way that the government, the basics of the government are structured, but for it to actually be a functioning, you know, constitutional republic, which it's yeah. not right now. Yeah. And I think also, like, under Toxin's, you know, Toxin Chinoetra, which people may know that he and his sister basically ruled the country for, like, almost 20 years before the latest coup or 15 years. Um, you know, that I think the economy seemed to have been healthier then, you know, and, and I mean most of the people protesting now are were like obviously children when that was happening. Um, but both the, you know, even though it was like a fairly oppressive regime still under the prime minister, the economy was doing better and the monarch was more well behaved than the monarch now. So sort of everything seems to be coming to the four right now, you know. Every, so like, this is like part out.
0: of this is a reaction to like just disgusting opulence, yeah, and I like uh, sure. and usefulness, yeah. uselessness, and you know, like wh- who I don't know. Similar Definitely. to like, like Pack and Hedge, just like this is like the dictator's daughter, and she's yeah has an IQ of yeah. like, seventy, <laughs> and has a shaman, and is carrying around these ridiculous handbags. Yeah, like that's part of the animating idea is that like this person doesn't even live here, Um, you know, like th- he's totally useless like it part of it is personalized in that sort of way
1: yeah i think definitely
3: and i I think part of it from just reading around um is that youth or generational difference is a huge part of this you know tammy you were saying i guess in thailand you're like anyone our age and above would just never ever criticize um the monarch but this is being led by high school and college students Mm -hmm. and in there there is a lot of parallels right with you know with, with what happened in hong kong And and I think also the sort of clear generational gap that's happening here in the U.S., I'm sure countless other examples that, uh, you know, I wish I could, I was more well informed about. Um, And you, I mean, Tammy, you (laughs) talked to your friend who had been there for a while. Do you feel like people who are actually have been there or are there now, like they're really optimistic about this? That's that's kind of why you you wanted to talk about it. Right.
1: Yeah, so my friend Rina, who is a very avid fan of the podcast. Thank you, <laughs> Rina. Um, lived and worked in Chiang Mai for years and has been talking a lot to her friends who are still in different parts of Thailand. And we should note that the protests have mostly been featured from Bangkok, but they're in like a few different cities all around the country. And yeah, I mean, first of all, Rina was just shocked that this was occurring at all. Because again, I think because of such a long history of just crushing dissent and having these laws where if you criticize the monarch, like in even the most sort of banal way, you would go to jail. Um, And then to have these young people just take this risk and rise up, um, it's just an absolute surprise to her and all of her friends there. So I mean, that to me is just like so compelling and incredible, you know? And then, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think they're optimistic, but with the incredible asterisk that there've already been a lot of arrests and, you know, some reports of torture and other sorts of, um, you know, the, the lashing back by the monarch and by the junta. So I think they're also very scared.
0: Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, it seems very promising. And, you know, I, I think that it's a, uh, the way that I think about these things sometimes just that there is with coronavirus, there is always going to be a lot of, civil unrest right to use the term there is going to (laughs) be there's going to be protests everywhere just because world economy is collapsing people are cooped up and opportunity seems very slim i mean i don't know i feel it myself and i'm one of the most i don't know i feel incredibly privileged but you know you think about it. your kid uh me and andy's kid probably gonna have a
3: (laughs) the kid we had together (laughs)
0: i mean andy's child you know collective child about the same age um probably gonna have a more difficult uh life economically than we did as Mm. immigrants right and so um you feel that and i think it's felt around the world it seems like it's definitely felt in thailand right now it's felt here in the united states right i think that fueled a lot of the protests this summer and um i think it will just keep popping up around the world i don't see how it couldn't right it seems to be doing that right now and you know there there's all sorts of lost generations everywhere right now that are going to be demanding change and they have literally nothing to lose and they have social media to make it seem way bigger than it is and so even if it's just clout chasing it ends up being like an actual exercise in um in protest uh Mm. and you know i don't know it it seems like we're going to see a ton of this stuff going forward over the next few years. At least I think so. I mean, you know, yeah. I can't imagine there will be a country where that doesn't have these types of protests.
3: I mean, hmm. so yeah, the, I think the more you think about the pandemic.
0: Parap- Maybe Canada won't. <laughs> Green, <laughs> so you Green, you Green have coronavirus. Under. <laughs> I think the United States is going to get, I think we're going to have like yeah wave after wave after wave. I mean, the question even is, even if Biden, even if Biden wins, I think it's going to be. Yeah.
1: Hmm. I hope yeah. so. I don't know. I think so. Yeah,
0: I hope so too. Maybe it's wishful thinking. I had a dream about it the other night. That's why I was thinking (laughs) about it. I had a dream that I was like at a Anti Biden protest, which is like <laughs> a very specific dream. Yeah. But it was like after the election and he had won, and I was like, you know, screaming shit about holding him accountable and stuff like that. And I was like having a great time <laughs> in my dream. And then I woke up and I was like, Whoa! <laughs> I was like what? <laughs> oh my
1: God. <laughs> I don't
3: know, man. I think keep going. he's you're just like um, sleeping right. with a huge smile on your face.
0: Yeah, I know. It's like the weird fantasies I have, just like pretending up anti-Biden protest after I, after I go vote for him. <laughs> I,
3: I, I think the more you think about the parallels between, you know, Thailand and, um, you know, Hong Kong, United States and the other mm-hmm. stuff going around the world, it like, I, I agree, like, you kind of think, like, how could this not be happening? A whole, the order that used to kind yeah. of keep things in place for the last 30, 40 years is obviously falling apart at the seams. Covid's not to blame, but it's exacerbating it. But then, you know, I don't know. I, you know, we've kind of said this a few times on the podcast. I don't know how this ends. I don't really see the bright future that's available. Um, and mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's within our control, but I don't know if that's, I if it'll actually, will actually get there. Um, and I think part of what a place like Thailand or Hong Kong has kind of, you know, Thailand's not small, right? But it's it's kind of t- economically, let's say. It's in the shadow of a lot of other powers. Mm-hmm. Um, there is that sense of kind of acting out um, in reaction to a feeling of sort of being um, controlled by these other powers. Um, so that makes sense, but you know, I think until something happens with like at a global level, right? There's only so much that can happen, and that's a little. I don't want to be depressing and pessimistic, but I guess, I, I guess the question is, I just don't see what's beyond the horizon yet. But, you know, like, well, in, in the you meantime, you, you you know, like, I agree, like, it's good. But right? like, like, it'd be actually a lot worse if they weren't doing anything at all. And people were just yeah, kind of accepting. Yeah,
0: attending the protests, you know, you don't always have to think of the results as the reason to go. Um, and I don't know the answer to your question, I think. I, I thought about it a lot, too. And maybe we can end on this thought. And Tammy, tell us what you think. And then we can we can get out of here, which is. I think a lot of it will depend on the climate crises that are coming. Yeah. And if there's enough time for the people to adjust and try and implement some sort of new order post-coronavirus before climate crises really start firing off in a, in a way, um, I think that maybe there's a chance there. But if we're hit with uh, crisis after crisis after crisis... Annie, what are you, are you like, are you rubbing your table? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, if we're hit with crisis after crisis, after crisis, then I think that we're going to be in, uh, I don't think that there will, I, I agree with you that there won't be like time or ability to change anything, but yeah. I don't know. I'm somewhat hopeful that there will, that even a small window will be enough to create some sort of change. Um, Tammy, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I hope that's true too. I just watched the David Attenborough documentary on the death of our planet, which was very scary, but he meant it as a, as a warning and a ray of hope. So I was trying to stick to that, but um, yeah, I do. I, I, I agree. I don't know that I have that much to add to that. I think like in the Thai context in some of these contexts, like although they are national, I think it's a kind of sort of like national, like a preservationist impulse nationally that is necessary, you know, for them to yeah. be able to move forward and, And they are, um, like, they need to have a sort of stability and say so that they can address the climate crisis and other sorts of more geopolitical questions. So, yeah, um, I hope we have the time as well.
0: Okay. We should end on that note. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, I want to thank our guest this week, uh, Jenny Wong-Medina. I thought that she added a great deal of great context to what we were talking about. And I apologize to her parents if we offended you. (laughs) Um, If you want to get in touch with the show, not her parents, but you know, you the listener want to get in touch with the show. Also, Jenny, if your parents want to get in contact with the show as well, you can tweet at us at TTSG pod, or you can email at us, email at us, email at us, email us at time to say goodbye at Oh, time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. You know, uh, yeah. Especially if you have questions about this, please email us. We're going to do a couple questions next week. We had so much to discuss this week that we couldn't get to it. But if you have any thoughts about the hair industry um, or, you know, anything like that or that New York Times article, let us know. Because I think this is something that we're going to keep talking about because I do think it's this interesting crux of like so many things and it is so it explains so much as well i don't think it's discussed nearly enough right we definitely talk more about liquor stores and things like that but really Mm -hmm. the conflicts start at these hair places you know even now all the conflicts are are in these beauty supply shops and the sort of like we said before i think that the place where you see black owned businesses being emphasized the most is in the beauty supply industry as well so We just want to talk about it as much as possible. Um, Thank you, and uh, we will see you next week.